the church, Christ City Church, we, we moved into Central Christian here at the beginning of the summer, and the, the goal was to try to just work out as many kinks as possible and get used to the space and all those kind of things. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been involved this summer. You've been such a huge help. Um, and there's more to do, but like we've accomplished so much. And it's really beautiful what we get to worship here. And, and, um, but with that, part of it was leading up to this Sunday. Because uh, if you know anything about Christ City, we've been through a few things. That's kind of our motto. Like, we've been through stuff. That's our motto. Um, and uh, so there's things that we are walking away from, which means there's things also we're walking into, like we're, we're stepping into things. And we kind of saved that idea really for today, because today we start a, a series of talks that we'll do for the next few Sundays around what it is that we believe God is calling this church to step into, and in turn, what that will look like and what it will take and all those kind of things. A, a year ago, the leadership here at the church uh, we went away for just a couple of days to pray and talk and discuss everything that is Christ City and to ask the questions, where is God asking us to go? And what will it take to get there? Where is God asking us to go? And what will it take to get there? And what came out of it was a clear vision and a clear mission. Now, vision uh, in general tells you where you're going. Like, we're going to go there. Like, we're going to go across the street. We're going to go to East Memphis. We're going to go maybe to Nashville, Nashville, wherever it may be. Vision tells you where you're going. Mission tells you how you're going to get there. Like, what's it going to take for you to make sure that you can get to that place that you want to go to? And, and so that's what we want to start with this morning, is this vision that we believe that Christ City has given us. And the vision is simple. You'll hear it a lot. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you hear it, you can't unhear it. And that the vision here at Christ City Church is that we desire to be a place to belong and a place to know God. We desire to be a place where people can belong before they believe. And a place where people over time can hopefully get to know God. And so this morning, we just want to discuss that first part of the vision. That we want to be a place to belong. And I believe that there's really, there's lots of passages. Because we, we desire as a church to, to be Jesus-centered to be uh, gathered around the reality of who he is and let that kind of push us forward. And I believe that there's all kind of texts in the Gospels that really give us a picture of Jesus wanting for others to belong. But to me, no other passage sticks out more than, than this one at the woman at the well. And so that's what I want us to talk about here for the next few minutes, this woman at the well. So let's just jump in. We're going to read Bible a lot and talk a lot and read and talk, so uh, you can have a Bible in front of you or, or some of the verses will be on the screen here. So let's just kind of jump in and look, because there's a couple of parts to this passage I think that'll help navigate it. One is there's going to be an invitation that Jesus gives, but because he's Jesus, there's always a challenge. There's always invitation, there's always challenge. So let's just talk about this invitation that's happening up front. It says in verse 6, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town called uh, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Now, here's what we know from the beginning of this chapter: Jesus has ticked off the religious elite as he always does. Like wherever he goes, people are ticked, and the people that are ticked are uh, rich people and religious people. 
because he's always pushing them to recognize their lack of neediness, okay? And so he's done done it again, right? Like he's down in Judea, Jerusalem area, and they're like, they're trying to run him out. And so he's like, you know what? I don't have time for this piece. I'm going back up north. So he heads all the way back up north. And there's really two choices you have when you want to go from north to south or south to north. Uh, you can either cut straight through, the quickest path would be through an area, a region that was kind of like a country within a country. It was called Samaria. Um, and, or you could kind of cut to the side, go about 50 miles out of the way, which, by the way, you're walking this whole distance. So 50 miles out of the way walking, um, and also to go through treacherous areas where maybe you could run into people who would maybe want to kill you or rob you. So the safest path was always through Samaria. And yet, most Jews would never want to take that path. And here's why. Because they believed Samaritans were the lowest of the low. They were the people they wanted nothing to do with. The history of Samaria is back in uh, 8th century BCE when there was the first exile happening. Um, The Assyrians came in and they took out all these uh, Jewish people, all these Hebrew people who were living in this part of of Israel at that time, and they would they would take them and take them into exile, and they would leave some behind. Though they really kind of left the most uneducated, um, the ones that they really didn't want anything to do with. Maybe the people who wouldn't be able to add to the commerce and the livelihood of their community in Assyria. So they left Jewish people behind, and then in turn, Assyrians came and moved into. Um, that part of Israel. And then there were locals that came back into the area as well that may have been pushed out during the conquest. So here's what had happened. You get a whole jumbled bag of all these people living together. And what happened over time is they started simulating together. They started becoming kind of like each other. So what was once this kind of holy Jewish part of of the country now has become like a mix of, of Judaism and paganism. And so over time, these people became known as horrible as it is, they became known as half-breeds. They became known as this mixed bag that when God's people moved back into the land, wanted nothing to do with. And yet these people had all these little ties and connections to Judaism. And so it was kind of a whole mess. Like these Samaritans were looked at as just the bottom of the pile, that you want nothing to do with them. They're unclean. They're uncouth. And God's people, Jewish people, would go miles out of the way just to avoid going through Samaria. They would call them dogs. That's how low they thought of them. And so we have Jesus, of course, going to Samaria. And his disciples must be thinking, what are we doing? Like, what are you thinking? No, just let's take the treacherous way. But Jesus has a plan. And this town they decide to stop in is a town called Sychar which in Hebrew means drunken, all right? So we're off to a good start, aren't we? If you're disciples, like, okay, we're going to where these people live. I don't want to be around them. And the town's called drunken, all right? So here we go. This is the context. And then it says in verse six or seven, um, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, the disciples went into town to go get food and everything else they would need for their journey. And so Jesus, around noon, is hanging out by this well, and this woman walks up. Now, a few observations that are important. 
One, the fact that a woman's coming, coming to draw water around noon indicates there's a story. That's not a normal time to go draw water because it's really hot. It's like Memphis hot. You, you see what I mean? Like nobody in their right mind's out around noon or one thinking, what a beautiful day today because you're just sweaty and no one wants to spend time with you afterwards, right? And so like it's hot and no one's going to draw water. The water even could get hot and warm itself. You don't want hot or lukewarm water in that way. So here's what we know up front. There is a story going on here that we just like, without even saying it, we know that's happening. And so then the second part, though, that's really, because, um, so on top of that, here's what be interesting. It's not just that someone's coming at noon, that there's a story. It's also that it's a woman. Now, this is a patriarchal society. So if Samaritans were at the bottom, 50 feet under the bottom were women living in a patriarchal society. It's just the reality of it. As unjust and sad and horrible as that is, that was the reality of the time. That not only if you were Samaritan, if you were a female, you were the, at, the, at the bottom there. And so there's all these kind of stories and narratives that are hitting us in the context that we have, kind of have to open our eyes and, and kind of see what's going on. And so Jesus is interacting there with her. And it would have been scandalous, though, scandalous for a man to interact with a woman in such a private spot. So there's obviously something going on with this woman, and then she sees this man. Now, she could be thinking all kinds of things, like, is he going to assault me? Is he going to harm me? Like, something like that would not have been out of the question. So she has all these things pinging off in her as well. I come here to stay away from people, and here's this man in the middle of nowhere when no one's here. What's going to happen? And so Jesus then starts speaking to her, and she says to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? How can you ask me for a drink? And because she knew something, she knew that her shame narrative was more powerful than the chance of what this could happen, what this reality could be in front of her. I want you to see something here. This woman, the only way she knows how to respond is in her shame. She sees another man here, and she goes, how can you ask me for a drink when I'm a Samaritan? And not only a Samaritan, I'm a, I am a Samaritan woman. Notice, she leads with her shame. She leads with the narrative that's captured her life and controls her and demands where she goes next. Now, let's just pause for a second and just consider, can you relate to that? Can you relate to a shame narrative hijacking your life and this thing that always follows you and you can't get out of the way? Like you can't outrun it. You know, guilt, the feeling of guilt is that I've done wrong and you apologize. So I'm sorry, please forgive me. Shame is I am wrong. My skin's wrong. My body size is wrong. My name is wrong. Where I live is wrong who my parents are wrong. Everything about me is just wrong. And I bet if you did enough digging in your own life, you would find that there are these narratives that can control you and shape you. For me growing up, I remember being in first or fourth grade and we would have uh, recess every day. But to be able to go to recess, you had to finish enough assignments. Well, I was a slow learner. I was slow at reading and slow at everything else. And I can remember probably on one hand how many times in two years I got to go out to recess. 
It was a shame narrative. It was something ingrained in me at a young age that said, I'm a slow learner and something about me is off. When I stepped into public middle school, I was chubby. And I remember like doing shirts and skins. Remember this? Like this was a thing back in middle school, do shirts and skins. And the worst part of my week is when I had to like go shirtless and run around the gym. Just real talk. But like you remember that. But like that created a shame narrative in me. And then when the Gulf War started, I couldn't like, listen, I had a girl's name and my mom was like color coordinating my outfits. Two strikes going on against me right there. She's also pulling up in like a red like Corvette banging like, like Bon Jovi. So I'm going, I got nowhere to hide. You know, like this is just my reality. And so that was the worst part of my life up to that point until the Gulf War started. And being Middle Eastern, being Iranian, then it was like, hey, Robin, how's Uncle Saddam doing? How's your camel ride to school? All those kind of things. So the narratives just kept compounding on my life where I had no choice but to live by them. Even trying to outrun them was me being controlled by them. Do you get that? So we have a person here where the shame narratives of culture, of the context she lives in, are compounding on her. And Jesus is interacting with her. And so then what's interesting is Jesus in verse 10 answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now notice something. Jesus doesn't go, you know what? That's a good point. You're Samaritan and a woman. Um, this conversation's over. He's redirecting the conversation. She wants to go to her shame he wants to go to her healing. She wants to stay in the past. He wants to give her a future. Can you relate to that? There are these times where the, the past is more powerful than what the future could be for you. And Jesus is trying to redirect and call her out, and she's missing it because the next thing she does is, like she's so inundated and muted by culture of her day, she only can think of terms of logic and power. Are you more powerful? Like, can you dig a well? Are you greater than, than Jacob? Like, she's, she thinks in terms of that culture and that context. Power, logic. And Jesus isn't interested in the power plays and the logics of the time. He's interested in her being set free from the shame that controls her life. But she's missing it. So then he like, like, he doubles down on it in verse 14. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, a couple of things for us to, to keep in mind here in context. Wells in the ancient Near East were like striking oil in Texas in like the 19th century. Like if you could come across it, you had wealth because it was the desert. And so you, wells represented like life. Communities would build their whole existence around wells. If you found a well, like you could like create a town and name it after you and then like be known forever, right? That was the reality for them at this time. So wells were these powerful places and 
we find that Jesus is somehow trying to connect the dots to this, and he's going to try, he's like connecting the dots to, to himself. And for the Samaritans, this well was their claim to fame. But then the second part is, these wells not just represented like success and affluence, it also represented like deep life. Deep life. This is imagery all throughout scripture that's being pulled from. A couple examples. First, in Isaiah 12, 3. It says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then again, in Isaiah 40, verse 10, they will neither hunger or thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Jesus is always brilliant. He contextualizes himself to all these moments. Like he doesn't make you step into his world. He's always incarnational stepping into yours. He doesn't make you go like, don't be silly and an idiot with that narrative in your life and just snap out of it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Move on with it. It wasn't that big a deal. No, he steps into it. And he gives her like an image that she can relate to. I love that about him. He's always trying to give us images we can relate to, things that we can connect to in our own life. And so here he gives that he is this well, that if she would just look in front of her and not miss out on this, she might find that change could happen in her life, that she no longer has to live by the shame narrative of her day, but maybe something could be different. Here's what he's doing and nothing less. He's offering her a place to belong. And the only requirement, the only entry fee to this place is her neediness. It's not outrunning her shame, it's owning her shame. That's the entry fee into this place. She wants to keep getting away from it. But he's like, no, like it's that thing itself that's going to allow you to actually have springs of eternal life welling up in you. Because he's saying he is the well. Now, there's the invitation, but then there's this challenge, right? Because if you are a follower of Christ, if you proclaim that he is your Lord, then supposedly you then have springs of life welling up in you, supposedly. That you are a place then where people can find life. And this is what the church has always been meant to be. It's a well. It's not a fence. But we get that wrong, don't we? So many times we get afraid of everything with the Bible and culture, so we feel like we have to defend the Bible. So we create fences that people have to cross into, and then they can belong. It's a very normal, natural thing that the church does. And yet just by that act alone, like, well, like, how do you talk about sin? Is that the right way? No, it's not. Okay, strike one. All right, well, how do you talk about, like, sovereignty or how do you talk about whatever it may be and then people don't like check the boxes so they don't belong but that's not the Jesus way Jesus isn't near as interested in people having the right boxes checked as much as he is as people getting a chance to get near him because wells center it in the ground so that people can come and leave as they need to fences are Checkpoints. And we build fences in the church out of fear. 
because we had to come through a fence. Somebody made you go through a fence, so they have to go through a fence as well. Somebody made you adhere to X, Y, and Z things doctrinally, so therefore someone else should be able to do the same thing. Otherwise, this is going to be a big mess of people, and how do we know like, how to connect with people? Let me give you a hint how to connect with a person. Be a person. You don't need doctrine to connect to a person. Here's what you need, your humanity, your neediness, your willingness to show up. That's not my interpretation. You, you get that, right? Like, that's just here. That's Bible. So there you go, Bible. I trust the Bible, then trust that. Let me, let me kind of lay it out a little bit more. There's this, this longer quote by Alan Hirsch, but I want you to hear it. He said, the modern church is a bounded set. That is, it is a set of people clearly marked off from those who do not belong to it. Churches thus mark themselves in a variety of ways. Have a church membership role is an obvious one. This mechanism determines who's in and who's out. The incarnational church, though, is a centered set. This means that rather than drawing a border to determine who belongs and who doesn't, a centered set is defined by its core values, and people are not seen as in or out, but as closer or further away from the center. In that sense, everyone is in and no one is out though some people are close to the center and others are far from it. Everyone is potentially part of the community in its broadest sense. It's because of this vision that we have, and it's because of even when we read something like this, that uh, Christ City made a, made a decision over the summer and we informed people who were part of the membership before then that we were doing away with membership. Really unpopular in the South, I know. Well, how do you know who belongs? Well, let me help you. Like, you don't have to be a member. This isn't like a club where you get a jacket. Although that'd be really cool, wouldn't it be? Yes. We got some great designers here. Um, yeah, members only jacket. You know what? Scrap it. We're going back to membership and members only jackets. That's what I want to do. Okay. Instead, what we said is, is that if you want to be a part of Christ City, then we invite you to partner with us, to come and partner with us. It's really easy, and yet it's going to be challenging. To partner with us means that you adhere to the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, meaning you see that, and you believe that, and you want to like interact with that and wrestle with it. It means that you support and get behind our vision and mission of where God is taking us. And then it means that you're willing to practice certain rhythms in your life that are these rhythms of grace that we believe are really important. And we'll have partnership classes moving forward. That's a big switch. Like, I searched far and wide, and I couldn't really find anyone that was willing to do this, um, and those that did were, like, so scared of it. And I thought, well, why not? Let's just do it. But no, but seriously, it was because, like, we want to create as much of a place for people to belong as possible. And then in that messiness, let that be worked out through relationship. So there's a challenge there we have for us as the church. But there's a challenge for you if you do not identify as part of the church, isn't there? Because Jesus just keeps pushing and pushing. We see here that Jesus will not let her get away from her shame. Matter of fact, it's, it's really interesting. The woman responds to him and says, Give me this water that I may never have to come back to this well. 
Give me the thing that you have so I no longer have to have this shame narrative. And Jesus stops her and he goes, well, go get your husband. And then she's like, I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, you're right. You've had five and you're sleeping with somebody else's husband right now. In the small town of Drunken. He will not let her get away from the full shame because here's what he knows. Until she owns all of her shame, she'll never be able to fully drink from him. Whatever your shame narrative may be, I want you to know something. Until you're willing to fully own it and step into it, you'll never find the freedom from it you crave. And that's so hard. That's so much. Because now it means you're willing to lead with that narrative, not run away from it. Now it means you're willing not to be captured and controlled by it, but now let it be assimilated into your life and redeemed and used. And it's going to be hard for you in a couple of ways if that's you. One is this. Look at, look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples, just then, I love the language, just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. You think? I think the message captured it, captures it more clearly. Here's what it says. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of a woman. Here's the first thing that you need to keep in mind if, like, you identify as a person wanting to find a place to belong but not sure you can. Not everyone will get it. There are people in this church that will not fully get it. And that's not to shame anybody if you don't get it. That's to say, those are just the odds. I mean, it's Jesus and his followers, and his followers don't get it. All they can still see is a shame narrative. Why are you here? How do you belong here? That doesn't make sense. No, Jesus, we jumped over fences. And he's like, no, you didn't. Like, you didn't jump over anything. I invited you in. I did Jedi mind tricks. Come follow me, and you went with me. Like, it wasn't just like that, but like, it was him going, just come be with me. And they don't get it. I want you to know something. People will not get it if they are overly concerned with their religion and their rules and regulations. You just can't get around it. So then what do you do? Well, that's the second part here. You still have to own it. You still have to own it. Because after Jesus revealed to her her greatest shame, he invited her into worship. True belonging. It wasn't until she fully owned the narrative, yes, you're right, that he finally goes, now you truly will find a place to belong, a place to worship, a place to know God. It says in verse 29, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be a Messiah? Said differently, come meet a man who saw me and still invited me in. Come meet someone who saw the worst of me and still offered the best of him. This is the vision of the church. This is what it could be. And here's what he's asking of us. Like, can you do this, church? Because there are people showing up at this church going, I don't know what to do with last night. It's too shameful to talk about. I don't know what to do with the last 20 years of my life. It's too much to get away from. 
But like, can I be here? Can I come near the well here? And that's what it means to belong. And look what happens when this woman finally finds someone who will like love her and her fully owning her story, she can't help but go and tell her story. Like now she becomes greatest witness. It wasn't the disciples going into town that won the town over. It was a woman who no one would want to talk to, no one would want to interact with. And yet it's a woman who says, I'm going to step into the deepest, darkest shame narratives of my life because there's someone who finally loves me and believes in me. Brene Brown, it's in your bulletin. She said, true belonging is not passive. It's not the belonging that comes with just joining a group. It's not fitting in or pretending or selling out because it's safer. It's a practice that requires us to be vulnerable, get uncomfortable, and learn how to be present with people without sacrificing who we are. We want true belonging, but it takes tremendous courage to knowingly walk into hard moments. If your story is that you have more shame than you can handle, and you've looked far and wide all over Memphis, and you can't really find a place to belong, and so you tried to quit church, and you've tried your best, haven't you? You've tried your best to quit church. But something in you tells you, like, but God doesn't quit me. And so I just, I just want a place I can connect. I want a place I can worship. I want a place where I can show up and people are willing to be with me. It's going to cost you, friends, a lot. It's going to be hard. I can't promise you you won't be hurt here. I can't promise you you won't experience rejection at times here. The only thing I can ask of you is that if you're willing to have that much courage to live in it, like, just keep talking about it. Because there will be some who can't connect and some who can. And that's scary, isn't it? But you know what? That's reality. And I don't mean like get over it. I mean like wherever you go, that's going to be it. At some point in time, it's got to be the thing you face. The question is, can you do it here? But if you're willing to, here's what I love, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Many believed because of this person who had the worst narrative and the most shame. Many believed. You know what it doesn't say? Many believed because of your great theology. Many believe because of like your long sermons and the way you exegeted something. Oh my God, now I really believe. I, not one person has gotten saved while I've preached. I don't think, no, nobody's ever gotten saved while I preach. They only like watch their watches. That's it. But here's how people do come to know Jesus. You owning you and you sharing you. That's the story, the woman in the well. That's the story of having a place to belong. And we don't understand the power of these paradigms we live in. We really don't. They control us. There's a story I heard of a pastor. And after one of his sermons, one of his congregants came up, a woman in her 30s. And she was just thinking over his message about how paradigms can destroy us, these shame narratives. She just had her head down. 
which that's where, that's where shame lies, isn't it? Head down, looking at the ground. She said to him, um, my father was a horrible drunk growing up. He would drink every day, and he was a rager. So he was a mean drunk. And starting at four years old, my father would tell me how ugly I was. He would get drunk and rage and go, you're so ugly. She goes, all throughout my ages of four, five, and six, all I can remember is my father getting drunk every night and saying how ugly I was. And he would say, you know what? Your eyes are the color of cat crap. So a four-year-old, I can't even imagine this with my daughter. A four-year-old would get on her knees and start praying, God, I pray that you'd make my eyes blue. I pray that for years. I pray you'd make my eyes blue. And then she looked up at her pastor and she said, what color are my eyes? And he looked at her, and they, she had the deepest blue eyes he'd ever seen. And he was like, did God change her eye color? Like, what a miracle. And she said, uh, my eyes were always blue. I just didn't realize it until I got into my 30s. power of shame, the power of the narratives we live by. And yet, the greater power of a God who loves us. Here's what I'm asking you to do. If you call Christ City your home, I'm asking you to give a place for people to be in process the big ask, and not pain. I'm asking you to give a place for people to be in process where you give space for someone to find their way to God instead of a place of pain where there's just more rejection. That's what I'm asking. And here's what I'm asking of you if you don't call Christ City your home. I'm asking you to be in process and be willing to experience pain. Those are big asks, I know. But here's what I do know. There is a God here ready to meet us and be with us and love us. That's the story we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the reality we get to have in him. And um, now as we go before you in confession and assurance, it is our desire that um, that we truly can find forgiveness for ways that we've missed it, 
and we truly can find assurance. And in peace, come before you and know that even at your table, we truly have a place to belong and to know you. Amen.